Hello, and welcome to your slice of rural Dorset life with the first episode for 2024 of the BV podcast. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. As ever, in the first episode, we'll have your letters. Simon Hoare, MP for North Dorset, talks about spring optimism and his own hopes for 2024, a year in which a general election approaches. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party talks of the need to invest in the NHS. Gary Jackson of the North Dorset Lib Dems looks forward with optimism to 2024 and hopes that a general election will bring positive and fair change. Pat Osborne of North Dorset Labour talks of the need for Britain to become energy independent through expanding green energy and of the Labour Party's Great British Energy Plan. And Fanny Charles has been unravelling the pros and cons of a new forestry plantation, mixed conifer and deciduous trees, not far from Starhead. First, let's hear from our editor, Laura Hitchcock. As an Essex girl from a big town, I have never forgotten the first time I saw a buzzard. It was gliding away from the top of a hill near Shaftesbury, and I genuinely felt like I'd seen a golden eagle. It was 30 years ago now, but I've never tired of watching them. And then some years ago, weirdly, from exactly the same spot, I saw my first ever red kite. A pair of them, in fact. And I promptly fell in love with them. I literally stopped in my tracks, mouth open. The memory of that moment is so strong, and it was triggered last week when I read Jane Addams' wildlife column this month. I still remember that visceral thrill of seeing the unmistakable forked tails casually adjusting in the thermals, feathers flashing their rich golden red in the sunlight as they wheeled. Never forget it. It's almost the middle of January. It's probably too late to wish you a happy new year, though I do. And as I write, the sun has finally come out after so many long weeks of the worst kind of flat, grey, depressing weather and so much rain. It's really easy in January to fall into a pit of gloom. Everything is darker, drearier and colder, but we mustn't let it beat us. We learned many years ago we simply have to make a plan for something fun, to have something to look forward to. And it is essential this month more than any other to pause and to notice the small things that can bring you a little joy in an otherwise dreary day. I have been paying proper attention this week. Here are some of the things that have caused me a small glow of pleasure. The perfect strength hot, hot tea in the perfect mug. Lunch consisting of ready-salted McCoy's crisps between two slices of butter bread, pressed down for the satisfying crunch, obviously. The piping serp of the gang of long-tailed tits as they arrive for breakfast and elevenses, brunch, lunch, tea, dinner and pre-dark snack. Also, learning that the collective noun for long-tailed tits is a volary. Putting on my favourite jumper. Finding a seven-hour playlist of Disney songs on Spotify. This issue has come to you courtesy of Lion King, Moana, Tangled, Frozen, Tarzan and I'm not even sorry. Also, watching a red kite from my bedroom window. Finding the lost gloves in the pockets of the coat I haven't worn for two years. And ginger biscuits at the back of the cupboard. I make the same recipe every December and I know it only uses half a packet. But I buy two packets just in case. Because at some point January always needs ginger biscuits at the back of the cupboard. And I was right. Again. And now some of your letters. Carolyn Staunton, nay Hunt, sent in an email with her memories of a snowy Ewan Minster. The snowy Ewan Minster scene in Barry Cuff's December postcards is of the house where I grew up, in the 50s and 60s. My bedroom was over that very porch. 
We had stables, a large garden and orchard, all of which now contain other new houses, and the house itself was turned into flats, so there are numerous families where once there was just one. There were fields opposite where our ponies grazed, and watercress beds to the right of the railings you can see, fed by the stream which passed under the road there. It's hard to make out the bridge in the picture. We moved there soon after I was born in 1949, when my parents acquired the house from Colonel Aston's widow, and it became Preston Farm House. The farm itself was on the opposite side of the road, reached from a lane further along the road, but it had no dwelling. I loved it there, and can still remember the names of our neighbours and friends in the village. We had hourly double-decker buses running between Bournemouth and Shaftesbury, a co-op, a post office shop, a butcher's run by my grandfather, a bakery, a barber's shop, a garage, the Talbot pub, once run by my widowed great-aunt, and a village policeman who changed his name from PC Tit to PC Pitt to save his daughter embarrassment. My father had a milk round, and daily deliveries in Ewanminster were made by horse and milk float, driven by an ex-carter, who whistled popular tunes throughout the week and hymns on Sundays. The annual village fete was held in the classrooms and grounds of Claysmore School, where, as a youngster, I enjoyed many films and plays in their old theatre. I wonder if the writer of the postcard was a servant in the house in 1908. In my time, there were still back stairs, a row of service bells on the ground floor, and numerous pantries which would have been used for food, china, silver, linen, scullery, and so on. I moved back to Dorset in the 70s. We had a lovely postman called Sid Duffett, who was probably related to the recipient of the postcard. Could stir actually sparkle? I'm writing to express my disappointment regarding the recent Christmas lighting in Stirminster Newton. The town, with its charming slogan, Make Stir Sparkle, had promised a festive display that would brighten the winter days. Unfortunately, the decision to once again use battery-operated lights on the street Christmas trees made it fall far short of that promise. The lights came on too late, they weren't on at school run times, and even when they were on, they were so dim you had to strain to see them as you walked or drove through the town. And then the batteries would run out. The contrast was stark when compared to the town's main Christmas tree, which was beautifully lit and demonstrated what the rest of the town could achieve. A few independently-minded shops clearly took the initiative to put their own lights up, which looked wonderful, but further highlighted the inadequacy of the rest. Instead of making stir sparkle, the trees instead rather dampened the holiday spirit. As a resident and a lover of Christmas, I urged the town council to reconsider its approach to next year's trees. It can't be beyond the wit of the council. Every other town and village seems to manage. A mains powered and correctly timer-controlled arrangement could in fact make stir sparkle. And that's from a correspondent whose name and address has been supplied. Ros Evely of Blandford wrote in to say, Olé! A bloke from Borton who loves Barcelona but supports Real, a wag from Wincanton who worked there, a copper closely connected to the Canaries, a raconteur revelling in it, though more comfortable in Italian, a systems analyst systematically learning it, two teens, friends of course, and many more. All were focused on communicating with the world, talking in a tongue not their own. Which, what, where? you may well ask. Spain, a fiesta de Navidad, and Spanish are the answers. 
as the local Spanish conversation group met at the exchange in Sturmston Newton to celebrate Christmas. What fun! What an effort made to bring tapas and pinchos to share. What excellent company. Olé! Oh yes! Everyone is welcome to the group, from fluent linguist to the fervent Duolingo beginner. The best point of contact to find out more is Ross Evely on 07818 That number again, 07818 And that's Ros Evely's number. December was a delight, says Marion Stone of Wimborne. I just had to write and say thank you and well done for the December issue. The article on the clean boot hunt was eye-opening. I'll admit, I saw the images first and, stunning though they were, I was enraged. How dare you? I read on, ready to be further inflamed, and instead was met with humour, pragmatic sense, and a way to thoroughly enjoy the sight of a pack of hounds and riders in mustard coats again. I didn't know Frederick Tree's relationship to Dorset. The CPRE's column, always interesting, was an excellent essay on a common-sense approach to housing and planning, and the local history is always a delight, though I do miss Roger Guttridge. I found some great presents for a couple of tricky to buy fours. The photography was as wonderful as it always is. The quiz was fun, and please tell Heather Brown her Boxing Day leftover sandwich was as delicious as promised. Where else can you find a magazine of such quality entirely for free? We're blessed to have you. And editor Laura responds, thank you, Marion, and we miss Roger very much too. Finally, Stuart Taylor from Blandford wrote in to say, then and now mistake. I'm writing to let you know that you have an error in Barry Cuff's then and now this month. I believe the building shown on the postcard is, in fact, the new Ox Inn, just a few doors down from the old Ox, but definitely a different building. And Laura, the editor, said, You're completely correct, Stuart. You're not the only one to write and tell me, and we caused quite a flurry of conversation on Facebook. Hands up, that one's on me. Politics. Simon Hoare, MP for North Dorset, writes as follows. Can I begin this first article of 2024 by wishing you, your families and those you love a very happy new year. I hope it brings everything that you wish for it. By the time you're reading this, I'm sure that many solemn promises, pledges and resolutions have either been amended, broken or abandoned. Is it not ever thus? When I was first elected as your Member of Parliament, I made a very clear resolution to serve you all with energy and enthusiasm. To do so with integrity to represent in Parliament the very best of North Dorset. Moreover, I vowed to be moderate and to work with individuals and organisations across the constituency, irrespective of party affiliation or voting history, if we shared the common interest of the residents of North Dorset. I also pledged that I would demonstrate independence of thought, not to be a creature of the Whip's office, but rather to vote in Parliament with the best of intentions and how I believed the majority of my constituents would wish me to do. I'm not claiming that I've got everything right, far from it. I am, after all, human and subject to all the weaknesses and foibles that are the hallmark of our human DNA. I also said that I would retire as your Member of Parliament when the tangible honour and thrill of being your MP weakened or disappeared. That honour remains as fresh today as it did in May 2015, so to that end I want to confirm that I will remain the Conservative Party candidate at the next general election, whenever it may be held. A new year signals the resurrection of hope, 
spring is apparently within view, with all of the promises of new growth and birth that holds. I also think it's a time for optimism. The battle with inflation is being won. Over the coming months, we should all start to feel the benefit of that, in the supermarket, shop or at the petrol pump. The reduction in national insurance contributions will make a real difference to many pay packets across North Dorset. The reduction in inflation clearly removes pressure for further interest increases. Recent announcements by mortgage lenders that they are cutting their rates are to be welcomed. The department where I serve as a minister is responsible for planning policy, as long as housing is in the right place, of the right design, and with the relevant contributions to local service provision, then it should be supported. It allows the next generation of North Dorset residents to continue living in the area where they were born, educated and have family and friends. It's then a real community bonus, in my judgement. We will have a budget in March and I hope we will be in a position to do even more to encourage home ownership, entrepreneurialism and some tax changes. For those not in work, the recent increases in pensions and other benefits are to be welcomed, providing, as intended, the social safety net below which no one can fall. Reforms to some benefits entitlement criteria, placing further impetus on the importance of work, should also be applauded as common sense, reinforcing the fact that work is good for the individual, their families and their communities. Welfare for those out of work but who are able to work should always be there as the aforementioned safety net. It can never be a realistic alternative to work or have the potential to become a way of life. We must also hope that the tragic and futile loss of life in communities in Ukraine and the Middle East comes to an end soon. I'm as upset and angry as so many of you tell me you are. Let us work for peace and sustainable reconciliation. So, a new year has dawned, a year in which we will have a general election. While I know I will be seeking re-election, I have no idea as to the outcome, or whether I shall be writing a new year piece in 2025 as your Member of Parliament. I hope so. I shall continue to work to retain your trust, but in the end it will be up to you. All I can pledge is my service to you now, and hopefully in the future. If you would like an appointment at one of the advice surgeries I hold throughout the year across the constituency, please email simon.hor.mp at parliament.uk. With best wishes for 2024. By the time you get to listen to this, Christmas will be little more than a rapidly receding blur in the rearview mirror. But nevertheless, I trust you enjoyed the festivities with family and or friends. Of course, not everyone will have been able to some through misfortune, and others through essential work commitments. My partner Pam and I were among the unfortunates, but our experience gave us a valuable insight into the challenges facing one of the most essential pillars of UK society, and that's our amazing NHS. Pam managed to break her arm at six o'clock in the evening of Christmas Eve. A major ouch moment. Arriving in A&E at seven o'clock, we found the waiting room almost full. Nevertheless, Pam was examined within 15 minutes and given painkillers and booked for an x-ray with a warning that due to staff shortages, there would be a long wait. When we were finally ushered into the x-ray area at one o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day, the extent of the problem became apparent. The ward was crammed full of sick and injured people and the medics were all extremely busy caring for them. All the staff who dealt with us were deeply apologetic for the delays and in return all we could do was thank them for being prepared to work so hard through Christmas.
The need to invest properly in our NHS is clear to everyone who is unfortunate enough to have to call upon its services. The same goes for our social care system, where poor pay and conditions contribute to record low staffing levels with 150,000 vacancies at present. NHS England data shows that 10,000 healthy patients were forced to stay in hospital on Christmas Day because of a lack of the social care facilities needed for them to be safely discharged. That's 10,000 beds that were not available for sick and injured people. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement prioritised tax cuts over spending on health, and there's no secret in the government's creeping backdoor privatisation of the NHS. 2024 brings local council elections and most likely a general election. This will be your opportunity to let our politicians know that healthcare is a major priority for all of us. Cuts to preventative and community care urgently need to be reversed. As the wonderful Joni Mitchell once sang, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. So let's do what we can to make the new year a happier one for everyone and make sure we don't lose any more of our amazing NHS. January is for looking forward at the year ahead. As a good Liberal Democrat, I look forward with hope and optimism. And as someone once said, a sunny and optimistic disposition will not solve your problems, but it will annoy enough curmudgeons and doom-mongers to make it well worth the effort. We know that there are serious challenges that demand serious attention and serious answers. But we should meet these challenges in a spirit of optimism that they will be overcome. The key thing is to mix the spirit with the seriousness and not equate optimism with frivolity, giving the impression that we can simply wish away our difficulties. There's been far too much of the latter over the last few years. Regrettably, the work will also take time and it will cost money that's in very short supply right now. It's just that with optimism, there's also purpose. And that is what we really need and must sustain if we're to make our way in this turbulent world. One reason for hope and optimism is the knowledge that a general election will be called this year. At last, we will have the chance and the duty to give our verdict on this desperate, wheezing and useless government. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, we will also have Dorset Council elections on the 2nd of May. As no end of speculation also suggests, we could have a buy one, get one free opportunity to get it all out of the way and done on the 2nd of May. But alas, only if Rishi Sunak has the courage to accept that the game is up and that we must have our say. A better way ahead is clear. It is more fair, more open and more free. I took some time this Christmas between classic telly and The Offspring's latest TikTok memes to read a great report by the Resolution Foundation, which I commend to anyone interested in serious ideas for the UK economy and the social contract. The health warning is that the report's weighty, but it is coherent and clear. It would also be demanding of any government that adopted it. More important, it would demand of us that we be serious too and understand the benefits will have costs. But the bit that really stuck in my mind was at the end of a section criticising a Cameron Osborne era notion about turning Britain's economy into one like Germany's with a broad-based, China-focused manufacturing export economy. The UK today 
is the second greatest exporter of services in the world after the USA, with smaller but important leading-edge manufacturing capability in specific high-tech areas. Yet we have stagnated. Now, I love Germany, but as the report says, Britain has strengths and we need to play to them. We need to invest more, both reliably and regularly, and value people much more. The report is spot on. We need to be a better version of Britain, not a British version of Germany or anywhere else for that matter. So I finished reading my Christmas homework, seeing a reflection of our values and great ideas. I have a strong sense that liberal democratic policies are right for our times and we should all have grounds for our hope and optimism in implementing them or realistically influencing a different government to do just that with rigour and energy. Liberal Democrats will field a strong team of candidates in the coming elections for Dorset Council to be the police and crime commissioner and at the general election. I am standing as the Liberal Democrat candidate in North Dorset for the coming general election and I look forward to bringing seriousness and optimism to ballot boxes across our beautiful slice of Britain. Peter Osborne, North Dorset Labour, writes, From the 1st of January 2024, the price of energy for a typical household using gas and electricity, and who pay by direct debit, went up by another £94, rubbing more salt into the wound of the current cost-of-living crisis. On an entirely unrelated note, the world's five largest energy providers are expected this year to reward their investors with record payouts of more than $100 billion, following another year of record profits that continue to be triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on global energy markets and gas prices across Europe. With a dysfunctional fossil fuel market driving energy prices sky-high, 2023 was still the second hottest year on record in the UK. The top spot goes to 2022, seeing a wet summer bookended by heat waves of 33 degrees in both June and September, alongside stories of ever more extreme weather events around the globe. It's clear that the case for owning our own clean energy has never been more overwhelming. Fortunately, there is a choice. With a general election on the cards in 2024, voters will get the opportunity to choose between Rishi Sunak's Conservatives, who have, in 12 years, failed to get to grips with the energy crisis and continue to renege on their environmental commitments, and Keir Starmer's Labour Party, with their vision of a transformative plan to create Great British Energy, a new, publicly owned clean energy company that will harness Britain's sun, wind and rain to create jobs, cut energy bills, accelerate net zero and make the UK energy independent. There's been some controversy over a new project to create a big new woodland on the Starhead Western Estate, not far from the iconic landmark of Alfred's Tower and from Starhead House and Gardens. Those arguing against have called it wrong tree, wrong place, wrong reason. But in favour, it's right tree, right place, right reason. Fanny Charles has investigated both sides of the story and I asked her to tell us about the project. 
The project is to plant something in the region of 190,000 trees on an area called Bonham Plain, um, which most of your listeners will not know, but if you say Stourhead, the area roughly sort of partly between Whitesheet Hill, the downs above Mere, and the woods around Stourhead, and the farmland on what was the old Zeal, the wartime Zeal's airfield. It's a plan to plant the trees on that area. I I want to say it's about 80 hectares, but I, I'd actually need to go back to my notes to check that. But um, it's 190,000 trees, mainly conifer, a variety of conifers, not larch, because larch, sadly, is being hit by a very unpleasant virus. Some of them are... Um, trees which are non-native but they are very familiar to anybody who knows about timber plantations but there's also going to be um, quite a lot of native hardwoods and a fair amount of the sort of the smaller hedgerow trees things like crabapple um, and alder that we that we're very familiar with um, native trees so it'll be quite a quite a mixture and but it will it is primarily conifer and it is primarily for timber this this particular area, of course, anybody who goes walking there and anybody who goes to Alfred's Tower, which a lot of us do, and it's beautiful and it's a lovely place for walking, we know that there is a lot of woodland there already, a lot of mature woodland, quite a lot of conifer woodland, but there is a, a considerable biodiversity in that ancient woodland, isn't there? Yes, and interestingly, um, ancient woodland, this is not... This is not wildwood. This is not the very ancient woodland. Most of the wood, woodland in that area, or much of it, I will be careful how I phrase it, much of the woodland in that area dates from the time of the whores who created the Stourhead Gardens. So this is early to mid-18th century, and as part of the whole landscaping, they planted a great many trees, far more trees, than were there before the whores bought the estate. Um, and the person who's behind this, it's a complicated history. I'll try and keep it really brief. That the, the Hoare family are related to the Hoares of the banking family. The Hoare family who had Stourhead and the Stourhead estate, when um, the last Henry Hoare died, he and his wife had lost their only son in the First World War and the National Trust took on Stourhead. Hence, we are all able to enjoy the wonderful gardens. But a big part of the estate stayed with a, a slightly more distant part of the family, but still called Hoare. And it is very confusing for people, and I totally get it. But that is the Stourhead Western estate. The, what we are talking about is a plan by Nick Hoare, who runs the Stourhead Western estate, is a distant cousin of the the Hoare family of Stourhead and the banking. So it's complicated. Sounds, sounds like a fairly typical English arrangement, doesn't it? Uh, big chunks of land being split up between different members of the family and, and uh, very frequently those members of the family do not get on. Yeah. I don't think there's any falling out with this particular family. The falling out, sadly, is with some, some of the neighbours, some of the people in the area who don't like what Nick Hoare is doing. Um, I can understand. I mean, this is old. This is the old airfield. So it is farmland and part of the area, which is not subject to the tree planting, will continue to be far, um, farmland. There was an initial problem in that somebody, and I certainly couldn't find out who, at some point early on in the application process, the land was described as grade three. Now, grade three 
agricultural land is not good. It is grade two, which is described as being, you know, suitable for, for food production. And that is one of the objections, that this is taking land for food production, out land suitable for food, out of production. I, I get that's a re perfectly reasonable concern. And there's a, a lot of people who feel that, and they are they are among the people who have either signed the petition or involved in the action group, or in some way are opposed to the scheme. The two fields which are most visited by people, because it's where the air, the old air runways are, and you can walk there. Um, there's not been much in the way of um, planting there in recent years. Often sheep there, but. Um, it is. It remains the fact that it is. It, it would be suitable for f food production. That's one of the objections. Another big objection is the fact that the Forestry Commission, who are the people who approve the scheme and then make the grants, they approved it without either a lands a landscape visual assessment or an impact environmental impact assessment. The, all these things come with acronyms, which makes it very complicated. Um, it's the lack of the environmental impact assessment which is one of the strong parts of the objector's case. The Cranbourne Chase, strictly speaking, Cranbourne Chase and West Wiltshire Downs used to be Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, now renamed National Landscape. All AONBs are now designated National Landscape. The AONB has objected right the way along, partly on environmental grounds, partly that there should have been an environmental impact assessment which would have allowed their concerns to be discussed. Um, one of their concerns is that this area is known as Kilmington Greensand Terrace and within the Cranbourne Chase and West Wiltshire Downs AONB it is a relatively rare landscape geological feature. It's not a particularly uncommon one in general across the country. That is my understanding. I'm not a geologist. <laughs> but so the Cranbourne Chase AOMB had quite a lot of objections. Um, I think I've reproduced a lot of their statement in the article, as I have the action group's statement as well, because it seemed that the best way to get for people to understand what the pros and cons are it, or at least what the cons in this case are, is to read what the, the objectors felt. And they, it's very well argued and it's very well put together. I did get onto the Forestry Commission, which was um, surprisingly easy and that within two days I had a response. I thought I'd just get battered off into the long grass and if I got anything, I'd get a holding letter and then I'd have to chase and chase. And as we were coming up to Christmas, this wasn't looking like the greatest time. In fact, I got a statement from them. It was one of those statements that you kind of go, really? Couldn't you have done better than that? But it first of all, it said, we do not comment on individual statements. And then it gave a clarification as to, you know, what they, what they do and don't do. But it was a response. It is the Forestry Commission's responsibility. They did make the grant, which I understand from Nick Hoare is in the region of 600,000, not the 900,000, occasionally rounded up to a million, which is what you hear from some of the objectors. I have not seen the figures. I cannot vouch for their accuracy, but obviously it's a sizable difference. It is, however, a great deal of money, public money, um, and um, it will take something like 25 years, I believe, for the the project to become profitable, well, 
to start making money. And it's a minimum 60-year project in terms of the value of the timber within this particular scheme. What made it so interesting is to find out how the Stourhead Western Estate forestry and woodland areas are managed. I suppose one of the, if you lived locally and this was a place where you liked to, to walk your dog or just, you were used to that landscape, I suppose you'd just object to any major alteration in that, in that landscape, wouldn't you? Oh, I think so. I mean, one of the objectors is Francesca Kippen, who's very much the spokesman for the action group and the people who are concerned. And she lives in Bonham Manor, which is a gorgeous old stone manor house listed and while we all I think any of us who know about planning at all know we sadly do not have a right to a view but it's sad if you lose a view and they will probably not for 30 or 40 years to be fair but the view of the of white sheet and the downs I guess will be lost to whoever is living in Bonham Manor. And more immediately, um, again, when the trees are high enough, they are at the moment about a foot high, but when the trees are high enough, they will lose their, their sunrise. And I can imagine, haven't seen it, but I can imagine that the sunrise over the downs is stunning. But those are, those are aesthetic considerations, sadly not planning ones. But I do understand that people... People don't like change, as I understand it from both the plans that I've seen and from talking to Nick Hoare, there will be probably a few more paths than there are. The uh, The airfield runways will remain available um, for, for us to walk our dogs and, and it's a nice safe place to walk if you're walking somebody who's maybe a bit disabled and can't can't walk in the forests. Um, there, one of the things that will happen is the an extension. If people know Stourhead well, they'll know that the woods along the road that runs alongside the gardens are famous for their bluebells. Absolutely stunning. It is one of the finest bluebell shows in the region. And there is a walk that goes from the Temple of Apollo on the hill, looking down onto Starhead Lake, goes down through the um, through the woods, and then you either have to go back to your car or you have to walk back along the narrow lane and deal with the people who do not always drive very safely on the narrow lane. <laughs> but um, as the forestry plan develops, that will become a circular path. So that's a, a small bonus for people. But I, I, I have seen nothing that indicates a loss of footpaths. Well, one of you know, one of surely one of the arguments in favour of this is that this island of ours has the lowest forest cover of any in, uh, if we include Europe, of any European country. So surely a project like this, even if it is going to be run principally for commercial reasons, um, and and we, we can talk about that in a moment. Surely this is beneficial. I would think so. Um, my understanding. Um, I should say I spent a great deal of time reading Forestry Commission, the Forestry Commission website, um, found a very interesting blog from the Forestry Commission's climate change advisor um, talking about a number of issues which are quite relevant to this scheme. I also ploughed through the UK forestry standards because I wanted to understand how or why you would or wouldn't have an environmental impact assessment. Um, 
it's not the most exciting bedside reading, I have to say. But one of the things I, I, I gathered along the way, talking to people, I mean, I talked to quite a lot of local people as well, just trying to find out how people, how people who walk their dogs, who go bird watching, you know, go to see the bluebells, all these things, how people felt about it, trying not, not just to talk to the, the more high profile people like Francesca or Bridget Wayman, the, the county, well, the Wiltshire councillor who is on the AONB board. Um, and biodiversity was the thing that came up most of all. But I did glean along the way that we import 80% of our timber, and that is a huge amount. And, and Fanny, if I just interject here, um, we, we, we nationally we've taken against conifers largely because of the post-war uh, Forestry Commission plantations because one thing that uh, that we did learn in this country from the war was the, the desperate need to be less reliant on imported timber. Yes, and if anybody goes up to Scotland or, or indeed to Northumberland, um, there are vast Forestry Commission plantations up there. They are pretty much monocultures and they have all the downsides. But this won't be a monoculture of single also, species of conifer, will it? No, but also what happens up particularly in, in parts of the highlands is clear felling, which creates horrible scars on the landscape. No, this will not be a monoculture because there are many different varieties. I mean, I was very interested to find that um, one of the trees that's being planted is coastal redwoods. And if anybody knows anything about the American West Coast, the coastal redwoods are one of the, the wonders of the world. And I actually had photographed a baby coastal redwood about a foot high and you look at it and you think it's hard to imagine how that's going to grow to be three or four hundred feet high and maybe it won't but it's part of diversifying the conifer stock as well uh, the other aspect which I thought was very interesting is the 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 forestry management system which the Stourhead Western Estate uses and it's called continuous cover Anybody who's walked in the Pencilwood, in the woods at Pencilwood, or below Alfred's Tower, but particularly if you go from Gasper and go round the long way round to Pencilwood, you, you'll know, you'll probably be familiar with these woods because there are loads of footpaths. And how it, how this works is that once things are planted, and they are not planted in those terrible regimented lines which we associate, particularly with the Highlands, thereafter. If they fall, they fall. If they survive, they survive. From time to time, once they get to a commercial size, a few will be cut. But the idea is natural regeneration. So that if you walk in some of the, you called them ancient woods, some of the old woods, they're probably not more than about 100 years old. Some of them are, because conifers don't have an enormous life, of course. Um, but you'll except find, for those redwoods. Except for those coastal redwoods, yes. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. And the Wellingtonias. Um, you, uh, there's a Wellingtonia down in the New Forest, and God knows how many hundreds of years old it is, and it's huge. I think it's about nearly 400 feet high. Um, but continuous cover, the idea is that quite rapidly you begin to get other growth because nature is completely extraordinary how if you don't crowd it out how it will survive so if you walk through some of the older woods where commercial trees have been felled you will find that there's all sorts of other things coming up um, and 
that can include uh, other hardwood trees, native trees. So you, there is already a variety of woods. It's You walk through these woods and you're walking through woods that feel like proper woods. I mean, I come from the New Forest and the Forestry Commission has got an awful lot of very intense conifer plantations there. But there are also, it because it is a thousand-year-old forest, there are also many, many, many old trees. And in the areas where the, where the Forestry Commission has not done its monoculture thing, you do get an extraordinary diversity. And diversity, biodiversity, is something that the Stourhead Western Estate says it is very committed to. The Butterfly Conservation Organization, I think in 22, did a survey and found a, not only a very large number of butterflies and moths and other insects, but also all, I think it's all but two of the native bat species. And on a, on a wider scale, the, um, the bird life in the woods, even the ones that look as if they are just really 90% um, conifer. The bird life up there is astonishing. There are now goshawks. I, I, was, I was absolutely delighted to read that in, in your yeah. article. I had no idea that we had goshawks so close to home. I had no idea there were goshawks there. But it did make sense of a sighting that we had when we were walking one day and we got the binoculars out and we both thought it was a goshawk and then just kind of went, you know, wishful thinking. All, you know, we're not twitchers we're not serious bird watchers all bird watchers long to see something rare and then you have to you know kick yourself and go no don't be stupid it's a sparrow um well this was obviously not a sparrow <laughs> but the reason why they know it's a goshawk is not only because they found you know sort of evidence of where where they go they they use a that they have a they'll use a sort of a cut tree or a fallen tree or something raptors to sort of bash things or pull things to pieces but also one of they one of the forestry workers set up a a wildlife camera so they, they, they know that there are goshawks there. And that's incredibly exciting. I mean, obviously there's kites because we, we've now seen the recovery of the kites and nothing to do with the forestry at all. But somewhere along the watercourses and the wetlands within the area, both the Stourhead Estate and the Stourhead Western Estate, I do not know where they are, but there are beavers. So in a way, this uh, proposed or this this new plantation, because it's uh, it, it's a lot of trees have already been planted, could just be uh, an extension in biodiverse terms of uh, what is already there. That's the aim. Oh, okay, of course, the primary aim is timber. It's a business providing timber to the British building and furniture market but mainly mainly building and obviously a lot goes for fencing and a lot goes for all the, the many many things that we use wood for there won't be many oaks there because it's not the right land for oaks sadly and i think this is incredibly sad there is very very little demand for beach for furniture anymore so i suppose the beaches will be there partly for their their um they're adding something wonderful to the to the landscape and of course there are a few craftsmen who will use beech so in terms of the native hardwoods they are there primarily for their contribution to biodiversity i have heard it said that the idea that they are mostly on the margins of the conifer area is simply cosmetic i'm sure it is partly cosmetic i mean of course it will look much nicer but there will be there will be patches and areas where other trees, um, birch, beech, alder, whatever, will be will be planted as well. And there is one area which I think if people are interested, 
if they look at there's a photograph of it in the article but if you if you're on the the northern of the runways and you look across the fields you will see a line of those creamy greeny plastic tubes and they were planted by the children from White Sheep Primary School and those are all various native hardwoods of one sort or another they have to be protected the conifers take their they just have to uh, chance it with and the protected deer protected against the squirrels and hungry yes. squirrels and yes. deer yeah but the conifers are not in the pl- plastic thing so if so there is there is not a forest of plastic tubes which i think people expect they think if there's forestry planting they expect to see hundreds or thousands of of plastic tubes and there aren't but the the native hardwoods they are being protected by them Fanny Charles explaining the Bonham Plain forestry project of Starhead Western Estate. And that's all Terry and I have for you in this first episode for 2024 of the BV podcast. Do join us again for the second January episode. Until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Davitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.